There it is. All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome. We got a beautiful, a beautiful Monday. I'm to be here with you all. And to talking about deep, deep stuff, getting into those difficult conversations. So let's see what we got. Here we go. Practicing. Hey, uh, Practicing polyamory. Real life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real life flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. Okay, okay, that's too funny. Just before the show, we were talking about how everything's been fine and then. My music doesn't want to play. It's just lagging on. <laughs> right. We're kicking off the week, everybody. Be- Today's awesome guest. I want to remind you all that we're doing three every week, which means a lot of opportunity all to ask if questions about your relationships or a topic you'd like to hear discussed on the show. Slide into my DMs, let me know, or leave a comment while we're recording live. Follow the show on social media platforms at Practicing Polly A. Let me know what it is that you want to talk And as always, as a reminder, if to this podcast, you are has to be on the show, and we share as many perfect stories possible. Because the more stories we hear, the more CS in themselves, and the more rotation we have, the more community. So go to practicingpolyamory.com and sign up to share your imperfect story too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the best part of the show and introduce today's awesome guest. Our guest. Lifelong passion for history, and with books and teeth, ride horses she could walk. Identifies as gender queer because f gender norms, and she geek out and fill her mind with knowledge about any. Our guest is really passionate about psychology, and part of her pursuit of counseling is an acute awareness of developmental wounds. We all carry them, and those wounds create relationship templates, affect how we interact with all subsequent individuals, especially after trauma, loss, and pain. Our guest has a heart for people in places of pain. mission is to reduce human suffering and to empower people to change the experiences in the world. Everyone everyone has growth they need to do. Today, we'll get to talk about some of that growth, including how and why we should lean into difficult conversations and learn from one another rather than fall into us versus them thinking. Joining us out of Atlanta, Georgia, president of the Georgia, welcome to Dr. Rachel and Kiri. All right, Rachel, I got to get my producer to play the music because my buttons didn't want to work. So nice. And out with me today. A little bit about have you always been that friend that people can go to and talk to all their problems about? Oh, man, you must have talked to other mental health providers before, because I think every one of us probably would say (laughs) that I I work with undergrads and that's what they tell me. They're like, well, I already am the person that ends up sitting on my dorm room floor talking to my friends at three in the morning. And I said, yes, welcome to the club. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Gotta love it. Gotta love it. So what exactly was it that inspired you to talk to a rep- or 
polyamorous communities, kink communities, all of these, uh, I don't know, forming, I guess, is the best mm -hmm. you can say. And by the way, hi, Robbie, joining us again. Um, you know, it's it's interesting that I often get asked that by other professionals who are kind of growing into this area of specialty and, and the, I think our evolutions into it are different for some people. It's, this was my personal life first, and then it became my professional life for some people. It's, this was my professional interest. And then it, maybe it became a personal part of life. And, and sometimes those two paths go together. Um, for me, my, my professional life, um, I joke that I was monogamous with graduate school for a very long time. Um, mm -hmm. Not necessarily my favorite relationship, <laughs> but I got some good things out of it. Um, but even when I was doing that work, I was, um, my biggest area of passion was, was working with marginalized communities and particularly looking at sexual and gender diversity and, and how mm -hmm. people had relationships and what people wanted in relationships. And so I kind of found myself keeping doing that work. I was doing advocacy work. I was um, providing support services for folks in communities that historically hadn't always been treated great by right. the world or by psychology. Um, and eventually that evolved into, I now have a private practice that almost entirely provides services to folks who are members of the polyamory or, or kink communities. Um, not necessarily because I exclude members of other communities, but because I get a lot of people reaching out to me saying, hey, I hear you're a person I can talk to about my experience and not be pathologized or shamed for it. Um, and that's the most fun part of my job. People ask me that all the time. Being able to be that person that people can talk to without shame about their lives is the best part of my job. Absolutely. I, and we need that, right? And we need a ton of Everybody that. Everybody needs it. Yeah, and and uh, one thing that we kind of talked about a little bit is that not all uh, psychologists, not all therapists are have the training to be able to offer this kind of counseling, this kind of therapy. Not, I mean, uh, you said pathologizing. That's something that that is um, a bad habit, I guess I'll call it yeah. that. <laughs> that some some therapists might do but is it just because they don't know any better is it because the education isn't out there is it because they just choose not to pursue that education is it religious based like where where does all of that stuff come from that 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 you know even within like the lgbtq space they can't go and just talk to any therapist it has to be somebody mm -hmm. that's affirming of those identities that's a really good question. And actually, I think in the way you framed that question, James, you hit on a lot of the answers. Um, and in my intro, you mentioned that I'm a history nerd, and I am. And that actually helps me frame and conceptualize the way I think about this. Everything is an evolution, right? And we see the same things come, the same themes come over and over and over again. We learn mm -hmm. a little more, we, we move the wheel a little further forward, and then we come back over and over again. And psychology is no different, right? We look at our history and we all like to think that our areas are perfect and have never had a problem, but they're mm -hmm. not. Our, any field has had its embarrassing moments and its problematic moments. And so psychology has had to grow and learn and change and go back and say, you know, some things that we did earlier in our history were not okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, we used to think that the bumps on your head somehow indicated your personality. That was science. That was, I mean, that was hard science at one point because we didn't have the ability to look underneath your skull cap and see things we can see now, like how are your neurons firing? We didn't have that kind of measurement. Right. And so we've grown and evolved and we've had to unlearn some things 
that we thought were absolute truth at that time. Mm-hmm. And as humans, we don't always like that change. And right. so I think one of the things that we're seeing in all of that is that people have to unlearn on the ind- individual level too, not just the science. And so unfortunately, sometimes you have people who were trained in a model that didn't include looking at diversity of behavior, that looked at one idea of what was normal behavior and pathologized everything outside of that and forgot to consider, well, you know, what if somebody's life is different? What what if somebody has any number of different intersecting identities, whether it be, you know, what if this is a person of color? What if the, this person lives in a marginalized community? What if this person is um, LGBT, et cetera, et cetera? And so um, psychology is really spending a great deal of time, like so many other sciences, talking and thinking about that. But it doesn't change the fact that there are people who came out of training programs at times when that wasn't being talked about as mm-hmm. much. When we talk specifically about members of the consensual non-monogamy community, um, those kinds of questions haven't really been discussed in therapy training for most of us. It was not a kind of, there was no handbook saying when you do your training on relationship therapy, which often is called couples therapy because that's the Mm -hmm. mindset people had. There's no handbook saying, yeah, don't forget to talk about people who are consensually non-monogamous. That just doesn't exist. Well, it does now. I'm it does so now. fortunate. I'm so fortunate to be part of a group. Um, the American Psychological Association has different divisions focusing on different areas. Division 45 is the division for LGBTQ plus issues. And they have, um, we started as a task force and now we are a standing committee on consensual non-monogamy. Um, And I am one of the people working in that committee. Um, There's some really amazing chairs doing some amazing work and and helping uh, herd some cats in that group. (laughs) And one of the one of the things that we're looking at in that group is how can we create materials, resources, as well as um, encourage programs to include that in their curricula when they're talking about relationships to talk about consensually non-monogamous relationships. So we're seeing it more and more. Individual instructors are including it in their um, in their courses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But certainly, I think a lot of us who work in this field would really like for every school that teaches <laughs> relationship therapy to be including some discussion of that kind of diversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we want to see it move faster, right? We want to see those results come. Don't faster. we all always? Yeah, yeah, always, always. But I love that that this this committee is happening. Um, I'm curious uh, where the research is being based. Like, I can yeah, take note. So it's, I, I, I mentioned this as as I am somebody who's fortunate to have been able to join into this effort. I can take no credit for starting this. Um, Heath Schechtinger and, and Amy Moores out in California are two of our co-chairs, um, both people whose names you will see on the research. If you look in like the psychology journals, um, Heath and Amy have done some, and, and some, many of their collaborators have done some great work um, on research on things like, um, I, I have to give um, credit to Heath. I love, he has a great article on just, he looked at, at people's experiences with therapists And what was the impact of having a therapist who was essentially affirming, you know, we talk about LGBT affirming therapy. He took that model and looked at it for um, consensual non-monogamy affirming therapy, 
what's the impact on a, a person's experience with a therapist if they are affirming versus if they're like negative or not affirming. Yeah. And of course, the impact was, well, people leave therapy sooner if they have okay. a therapist who's not affirming of their one of their identities, which, of course, isn't Makes good sense. because we yeah. need to be in therapy to be working on our, our issues, which may have <laughs> nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that we're consensually non-monogamous, right? I may be going to therapy to work on my anxiety or my relationship mm -hmm. with my parents or whatever it may be. Um, and so but we are seeing research. Up, as soon as I bring up non-monogamy, if I'm not with somebody who's affirming, they're going to try to blame it on that. Right. And that's exactly the kind of thing that myself and Heath and Amy and many of the people that are part of this committee find ourselves doing in our work. I do as many as I can. I do trainings for other therapists, other clinicians talking about uh, consensual non-monogamy as one of many intersecting identities that a person may have. Mm -hmm. And it is not necessarily the clinical issue that a person is coming to therapy for. I love it. So, I mean, when you say intersecting um, identities, there's so much to like unpack there. There's, there's so many different ways that we can go with that because of course, you know, we're all intersecting a lot of different ways. How exactly do you take that? Like, like you said, you say, uh, if I'm coming to you for help with my anxiety, it just happens that I am non-monogamous, right? That's just one of my many identities. Like, how do you take that those intersections and make them part of your practice? Especially like, for example, if you have uh, someone uh, who's a person of color, right? And you're a history major. So you love reading the history and you know, you know how you, you can connect with a lot of that stuff. Um, but there's an intersection that you will never understand. Mm -hmm. Right. But you, how do you approach your practice from that intersectionality aware standpoint? Yeah. Well, there's, there's two pieces for, for me for that. One is that I, um, I want to, obviously I want to always be aware of the inner, the identities that are in the room. And for me, I was really fortunate. I came up through a training model that was very diversity aware, didn't include consensual non-monogamy though. I'm not going to, mm -hmm drop my training program in it. They, they were way ahead of the, of the kind of the, the wave, the crest of the wave on this one, but it just hadn't, you know, hadn't gotten there yet. Um, they are now though. One of my collaborators actually nice. is teaching at the program that I came out of, which is very cool. Nice. Um, but, but I did come up, up in a program that was very um, about intersecting identities and talking about awareness. And then in a training program and a clinical training that was all about talking about this. And so I had a lot of support um, in a model that basically said, like, I'm going to walk in the room and talk about that and say, hey, I can't know what it's like. I'm a white woman. Mm -hmm, <laughs> I mm -hmm. can't uh, I can't know what it is like to live in the U.S. in your black skin. That's going to be different. But I'm also going to talk about it and acknowledge that my privilege is in the room with me. Um, and and I would do that with with anybody. In fact, I talk about that when I talk about um when I talk about differences in relationships, you know, people come to me and they'll say, they'll use words associated with consensual non-monogamy and kink. And they'll say, oh, well, you know what that means because you're in this community. And I'll say, mm -hmm. whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know what that means in your relationship. Right, you may right. use that completely different from somebody else I work with. So let's stop and talk about 
what this looks like for you, what you want for that. So I think checking my assumptions and talking about that is really important. The other piece that um, that I think becomes really important there is, um, so I have this mental model of intersecting identities that makes sense for me. Um, and it's a sheet of paper with a bunch of bubbles on it that I'll have. I have students do this exercise all the time. And I have them fill in the bubbles with all all of their different identities. And if you did all of them, you could fill like all the walls of a room, right? Sure, yeah. And I have them write down things like, you know, well, you know, I'm a person of color or, you know, I'm I'm the eldest child in my family. It can be demographic information. It can be social roles. It can be personal values and beliefs or identities. So many different things. And I'll talk with people about, well, how do those things get along? Do they kind of slide over each other smoothly? Almost like, you know, like imagine like those water bead orbies kind of sliding all over each other. Or are they more like rough pebbles that kind of strike sparks off of each other? Hmm. And so when I'm working with people around that idea of intersecting identities, sometimes everything goes along great, you know, like, you know, maybe I, at, at one point I was a program director and I'm also an oldest child. And so I have a little bit of that kind of older sibling syndrome where I organize and take care of everybody. So those two were a great fit, right? But then other times people will say things like, well, you know, I let's say I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a, a polyamorous relationship and I, I that's part of who I am. But I also come from a family and a faith background where that's right. not OK. Mm -hmm. And so there's this point of tension. But neither of those things are pathological. Right. This person might be in a very healthy relationship and be dealing with it well. But then I will have people say, but I can't share this with my family. And I love my family and my family is great. That doesn't make either one pathological. It just means that it's a point of tension and stress in that person's relationship. That and that being able to talk about that with somebody who can understand that without pathologizing, I think is one of the most powerful things that a mental health provider can do or than anybody, a friend, a community member, um, without necessarily demonizing one thing and, and, assuming that that one is better than the other you know people we don't want to give up our our families even if they're not perfect no. right yeah i totally agree i mean as as you're talking about it here uh i keep kind of thinking back to uh this this subject here of leaning into these difficult conversations so when you bring up something like um the the intersection that doesn't mesh being polyamorous and having having that re religious you know um upbringing religious family and whether it's a religious upbringing a religious family or <laughs> i i went with my brother this past weekend to uh to uh his high school reunion we had a lot of mutual mm -hmm. friends and somebody sees me there and they're like immediately like oh so so you're you're what now you you, you do this thing now like what is it and I'm looking at it like, you know what it is. Like, mm -hmm. don't be stupid. Anyway, so we get into these situations like, how do we, what, what why is it important to you, I guess? What was it that, that you wanted to talk about when it comes to leaning into these difficult conversations? What is it that like, why does that matter? Okay. Micro scale, macro scale, and everything in between. Right. On the micro scale, it matters when I when there's a person right across from me, like let's say a partner mm -hmm. that I have a difference of opinion with, or that I'm irritated with, or that I need to tell a difficult truth with. 
like that's important. Like I need to, you know, like I, I make the joke all the time. This is my 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 relationship therapist showing up that, you know, we get into re- huge fights over little things, right? Like how somebody stacks the dishwasher is always my mm-hmm. my example. Right. <laughs> Good one, yeah. but, and it doesn't bother you on the first time, but it bothers you on the 120th time. And then there's a huge fight. So I need to talk about what are my expectations about how we stack the dishwasher or how much time we spend with each other or, you know, how, you know, all of that stuff. So on the micro level, leaning into difficult conversations, even if they're not difficult on the face of it, but we're afraid mm-hmm. because we fear conflict and we fear losing people and we fear, well, what might happen if I tell the truth about what I want or need? Yeah. So on the micro level, I think it's really easy to explain why it's important to look somebody in the eye and say, hey, when you did that, I felt uncomfortable or I didn't like that. Or can I ask for something different? It can be tough, though, don't you think? Oh, it's terrifying. Terrifying. It's because the closer a person is to you, the more it matters, Mm -hmm. the more scary it is. And some people just kind of don't don't have that ability. I I, I shouldn't say ability, uh, but they have a tendency to ignore their own needs and be willing to sacrifice themselves. Like, yeah, that bothered me, but it didn't bother me that much. Well, and it's why I couldn't stop smiling as I was listening to the introduction, because I absolutely include myself as in the list of imperfect people. (laughs) And when I talk about this and think about this, it's, I, I, my work isn't in this area because I'm perfect at it and I'm going to teach everybody how to do it. My work is in this area because I'm one of the people who has to work on it too. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I hate conflict. I don't want to tell people what bothers me. I just want everybody to be happy all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Can we but just I that, know, please? right, exactly. I just want to wave my magic wand and have everybody be happy all the time. That's but- not how it works. That's not how any of this works. That's exactly true, right? Um, I know that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. And and I, I need to tell, be, because the thing that I know, partly because people often expect this from therapists, is that people aren't mind readers. No matter how much we love them and want oh, them to be, gosh. people yep. are not mind readers. They are worse at it always than we think they're going to be. And we are less obvious always than we think we are being. So we have to say it in words or write it down if we can't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think it's terrifying, but also important. And it's also a skill that takes practice. I think we think, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it once and then it'll be over. And it's like, oh, no, no, no. We have to do it a little bit every day till it gets easier. And then it becomes a skill. I, I liken it to like lifting weights, right? Don't mm-hmm. go to the gym, pick up the 300 pound weight break yourself, but say, Hey, I lifted 300 pounds. No, go to the gym, pick up a five pound weight and go one, two, three. Okay. Put it down and then go back tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and on and on and on and on. So I think it's important for our personal relationships that we need to learn how to say things that may feel difficult or scary and, and, and do it in a supported way. Like ask our partners to, to help with that and, and to say, Hey, good job. I saw you do that really hard thing. Like props for you. You want a cookie. Why is it important in the macro level? Because I think in the world, we're terrible at doing it. I think in the world, we've gotten into this us versus them mentality, whether it's in groups or in, in the media or in so many ways. And it's really easy to ignore what people are trying to tell us. What do you mean? Well, I think somebody made a comment to me the other day about feeling, um, 
feeling like they didn't fit in in a particular mm -hmm. conversation because the conversation was being had by a group of people, none of whom had children. And that person said, well, you know, I'm different and, and because I have a kid. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a person who has an, an adult child. This is not a person who's like tied up by a small child or busy or couldn't and, and spends a great deal of time, but somehow felt like they were categorically different. I know for a fact that that group doesn't consider that person different or not one of them. And yet we're so quick to categorize and group and say, oh, you know, like parents are different than people who choose not to be parents or, mm -hmm. you know, students are somehow different from people who've graduated or, you know, we, we, as humans, we categorize because it's part of how we deal with the overwhelming amount of information in the world. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we need to stop and say, wait, maybe that categorization isn't true. Maybe I'm making an assumption. Yeah. And I mean, as, as you're saying that, I, I think, I think back to a lot of the stuff that I see, like in polyamory groups, uh, stuff like gatekeeping, right. Mm -hmm. Um, or, you know, I, I, I hear, um, you were talking about the the children versus child free and like there are i've seen posts where where somebody's asking i don't know advice about about their kid and then somebody just jumps in there like that's why i don't have kids and it's like nobody asked for that nobody needed that but yeah. like you put these we put our, ourselves in these different boxes how else does that um this this us versus him uh, us versus them mentality how does that play into like polyamory like where do you see that it falls into our polyamorous communities and and some of the steps that we can do to try and make that better i think we all have a tendency to do it partly because we're trying to simplify an incredibly complex life right it's like we're sorting everything into categories remember when we were kids we had blocks and it was like okay put the square block in this box and the round one in this we're trying to do that with our lives because we're all so overwhelmed i mean stress management is a whole other topic that just we all need self man self stress management and self-care mm -hmm. um and so I think what we do is we look at something and we say, is that like me or not like me? And if it's not like me, we try to throw it away because we're already trying to juggle too many things. But unfortunately, sometimes when we do that, we've only taken a cursory glance and we haven't seen that maybe there's something there that actually we have in common, right? Maybe that's a human who also has some struggles that we might have in common, but we haven't connected or we haven't communicated in a way that that makes that possible. So for example, on the, and of course, social media and just typing comments without context <laughs> sometimes allows us, it's not a bad thing, but it allows internet us to warriors, do that. Internet warriors, right? Well, and it, I mean, I can be an internet warrior sometimes too, but you know, we, we lack tone and we lack context and we don't know what a person means by something. Mm -hmm. And of course we don't give all of that when we type a forward answer, right? Right. So even the example of someone who types, who puts in like, that's why I don't have kids. Maybe the unspoken part of that is, I made a really difficult decision not to have children because I didn't know how to answer this question, mm. but they didn't include that. And so an assumption was made maybe by the, the original poster who was like, ow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so feelings were hurt because context wasn't had and, and further communication wasn't had. Um, doesn't mean that everybody needs to figure that out. Right. We don't have to have lengthy conversations with everybody that posts on our social media, right. because if we did, we wouldn't have any hours of any day. <laughs> I think we have to learn to say no to some conversations, but we also have to choose to lean in 
to some other conversations. Yeah, I guess the trick is just figuring out which ones, like where the learning opportunities are, where where we have an opportunity to actually make an impact and, and you know. Well, and what do we need, right? So mm-hmm. what is, what's important to me? Am I, I'm going to pursue this conversation because this relationship is important to me because I value it. It's not easy. It's not perfect. This person is never necessarily going to see the world exactly the way I see it, but I want to maintain, you know, I think the example of families is always going to be placed. There's always some conflict in a family because we're not identical, excuse me, identical people. And so, you know, that example of, well, it's worth me putting in the hard work here. Um, Whereas, you know, then we talk about like, don't feed the internet trolls. Like, yeah, that, (laughs) what is that going to get you? Now, if, if it gets you something that's, that's useful to you, by all means, there's some people who that's their fun is, (laughs) is, is challenging people on the internet. That's not me. It's not my thing, but if it is yours, go for it. Have fun. Have fun. I love it. Yeah. Rachel, thank you again. Uh, It's been a blast getting to know you, getting to chat with you a little bit. Uh, If, people want to work with you can you tell uh especially for our listening audience we got a podcast listeners of course uh where can people find you how can they get in touch with you and what will they see when they look you up sure um so i'm somewhat fortunate i suppose that i have a somewhat unique last name so you can google me and i probably will come up um you the easiest one to find is probably on facebook i am at dr D-R, Kieran, K-I-E-R-A-N. My website is www.r, as in Rachel, K-I-E-R-A-N, and then P-S-Y-D. So it's the first three letters of psychology and then D as in dog, um, dot com. Um, Those are really the two easiest ways to reach me. Perfect. And just out of curiosity, is there a difference between Psy-D and other, like, is that a specific designation for you? It is. So a PhD is a doctorate of philosophy. And then it says what it's, uh, so if you get, say you get a PhD in clinical psychology or a PhD in clinical, it's the same way you would get like a BA in psychology. A PsyD is a doctorate of clinical psychology. It's specifically, it's a specific designation for a degree that is, it's a doctorate too, but it has a slightly different focus um, that is less on research and more on clinical practice. Got and it, it, there's it. nerdy arguments back and forth in the psychology community <laughs> about which is better. Nobody's better. We all just want to help people. There you go. There you go. All right, Rachel. Well, thank you once again so much for hanging out with me today. Really appreciate your time um, and your input. Thank you so My much. My pleasure. And thank you, as always, for our live audience for tuning in today. As a reminder, when we're live, you get no commercial interruptions, but the same can't be said for those podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid the commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, or Twitch, 2.30 Pacific Time, or sign up for our Patreon where you'll get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and support the show. Don't forget, subscribe on YouTube, wherever it is that you download your podcast if you haven't already, and please leave us a review. We'll really appreciate it. That is all we've got for you all today. Let's see if my buttons work on the going out. Till tomorrow, everybody. Have a nice day! 
Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash practicingpolya.